You know, it's funny. I started my last sermon by talking about sleep, and we're going to go right back to the well. Because I don't know about you guys, but I remember growing up, sleep was a big topic. In fact, in preteen, our fourth and fifth grade class, a couple of weeks, maybe a month or two prior, they were talking about the idea of staying up all night. Somewhere along the line and being a kid, the pinnacle of growing up is how late you get to stay up. And for these preteens, the pinnacle of the pinnacle is the all-nighter. And I don't know about you, but I remember the all-nighter. And there is a time in your life where the all-nighter is pretty cool, where the all-nighter is ultimate. In fact, in college, I pulled a lot of all-nighters, mostly for Greek. You know, third semester Greek was challenging. But a few times, I did it intentionally for fun. One of those that comes to mind is when we had a brilliant idea. You know, we lived at Taylor University in the middle of a cornfield. There's not a lot of options, but there is a 24-hour McDonald's. And what we decided would be awesome is if we drove to McDonald's at like 11 and got a burger, and then we stayed there until it served breakfast. And then we could eat two meals at McDonald's without leaving the building. I'll tell you what, that all-nighter was a success in the fact that we did it. And it was horrible the next day. In fact, all-nighters are almost always horrible the next day, and while they can be really useful when used properly, they can do some real damage if you do them without thinking about it. And unfortunately, while all-nighters are a pinnacle for many of us growing up, if that's the whole point of growing up, if that's the thing you focus on, you're really missing the majority of what's out there when it comes to becoming an adult. And in our culture, there's something that's way louder than all-nighters. There's something that's way more important than staying up all night. And you probably already know what I'm going to say. Because similar to all-nighters, the most impactful conversation that is in our society and in our culture today is when you grow up, you should figure out what you're doing when it comes to sex. Sex is everywhere, and it is a pinnacle for the people growing up in our society about growing up. They are told that coming of age means being sexually active. It is a loud conversation. In fact, that's the first thing I want you to write down, that the loudest topic in our culture is sex. Whether it's a coming-of-age conversation, whether it's about our kids, or whether it's a, a retiree or just living in the world. Everywhere you go, you're hearing more and more about sex. You know, uh, I don't know if any of you play video games, but uh, Blizzard, a big video game company, recently released their like lauded uh, Diablo 4. And one of the ways that they decided was important for them to to promote this action RPG where you fight demons was with this headline. I can't even show you the, the images, but I'll show you what the headline reads. It says, watch a scantily clad Megan Fox read Diablo 4 eulogies for ridiculous Diablo deaths gimmick. It is everywhere, from video games to advertisements to TV. You can't go anywhere without being exposed to sexuality. It's in our schools, it's in our newspaper, it's on the internet, and it's where you walk through downtown New York or Minneapolis. And now we're talking about it in church. It really is everywhere. And yet we're doing that for good reason. We're doing that because the conversation around sex and sex itself is important. Especially so when we are inundated as much as we are as a culture with it. We have to know how to engage in this topic the way Christ would have us. What we're doing it right now is because we're in a series that talks about sex. We're going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and it's here. Now, again, if you haven't caught on at this point, if you're joining us online, this is going to be a PG-13 topic, so 
you might want to double check and make sure you want any kids around hearing what we're talking about. Because the letter to the first Corinthians gets into sexuality. You know, throughout this series, Dear Suburban Church, we have looked at how this letter written in the first century to the Corinthians could have been written to you and I. How in many ways, discussions around the Holy Spirit or judging or women or a host of other things, man, they could have been written right to us here in our suburban church. And today, we're going to explore what Paul had to say about sex and sexuality. Let's jump in here to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And while you're turning there, just a reminder, Paul has things to say, and we're going to talk today about sex within marriage, about outside of marriage and singleness, and about sex in general. So whoever you are, there's something here for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 reads like this. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Tell me the Bible is boring, I dare you. You can't read those verses and not admit they are jam-packed with action. There is a lot in here, and unfortunately, these verses have been used by churches across our nation in a way that wasn't beneficial, to teach things that are not helpful but are actually hurtful. And my hope today is that we can teach what Paul intended from these verses and to do something with them that actually guides us whether we are married or single, whether we're searching or we've been in this situation for a long time. I'm hopeful this is guidance for us to healthily practice sexuality. Well, this passage starts off with a euphemism. It is good for a man not to touch a woman is the literal uninterpreted Greek. Uh, the NET Bible is a resource that I use a lot because they put little notes in underneath, uh, underneath their translation with stuff like that for you to peek on. And, and here in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 6, it has this note. It says, Paul cites a slogan the Corinthians apparently used to justify their actions. If this is so, Paul agrees with the slogan in part, but corrects it in the following verses to show how the Corinthians misuse the idea to justify abstinence within marriage. And so based on, on this text and on, on information like found in the NET Bible here, we can understand that Paul, in his teaching, talks about abstinence is good, that abstinence is a good thing. He talks about singleness in high, high language. But the Corinthians are misapplying that idea of abstinence into their marriages. It sounds kind of wild to us, but the Bible Project course that Pastor Chris and Pastor Jason have been talking about in this series, it, it talks about this as well. And it reaffirms what I'm about to say, that the Corinthian church had people in it who had chosen to abstain from sexual relations with their spouse— but then we're going to temple prostitutes and having sex with them. Seems pretty wild. 
And Paul has to come out and be like, no, wrong. You are doing it wrong. You have a spouse. Have sex with them. So I think it's fair for us to say that Paul is telling us it is good to have sex with your spouse. Thank you. I'll be leaving. No. Uh, it, he has to come out and say that because they are taking this idea of spirituality and going in a whole different direction because of their context. And often we can misapply sexuality in a similar way. And that is the danger of this text. So let's make sure we avoid that with where we're going. Because here in this moment, here in this text, Paul does something that's actually beautiful. In this text, he puts the husband and wife on equal footing, which is not a thing that happened in Corinth at that time. It is not the kind of language that they would hear elsewhere from other teachers. Paul tries to say, hey, husbands and wives, neither of you have the authority to make unilateral decisions about sexuality. You are in this together. It wouldn't be uncommon for Paul to address men and say, men, this is what you need, this is what you should do in your wives. But the fact that he addresses women here in this passage, that's huge. And that should tell us something. See, a lot of ways that this verse has been applied is that you don't have authority over your own body. So wives, when your husband, who usually wants more sex than you, wants sex, you should give it to him. That is your job. And that is a misapplication of this passage. Paul is not encouraging us to have sex whenever our partner wants us to. It is deeper than that. It is bigger than that. In fact, I think a lot of men probably need to hear the, the opposite message, that you need to be meeting the needs of your wife both outside and inside the bedroom more than your own. That's maybe the message the church should have focused on, but unfortunately, many churches have focused on the opposite. What Paul is saying here should be obvious, but I'm going to say it out loud. It's that you should have sex when you both want to have sex when you are husband and wife. That is a good thing that honors the Lord. But he's not saying have sex whenever one of you wants to. Yes, the other person should have weight in what you do with your body. You are married. The authority is not just yours. You're giving it to your spouse. But you are not denying how you feel and you're not denying what you need as a person. That is not what Paul is calling us to do. In fact, what Paul is saying is that sex is a good thing But that's not the end goal. It's not all about sex. The end goal is not sex. Your marriage is bigger than your sex life. And so Paul is reminding us and he's reminding the Corinthians that sex within marriage is a good thing. It's the place that God has designed that intimacy to occur. And he has to remind them, hey, sex should not be used as a power dynamic in that relationship. This is not an opportunity to get what you want using sex. Nor is it supposed to be a primary spiritual tool where if you abstain from it, you are more holy. He says like, yeah, maybe you decide to do that for a time, but come back together. He's not even saying that in strong words. He says perhaps. And so to the Corinthians and to us, the reminder is you should have sex with your spouse when they want to and when you want to. That's how it's designed to work. And the rest you need to honor one another and work with one another in that process. Paul is not saying that you can't have boundaries with what you're comfortable with in your sex life, in your marriage. He's not saying you can't say no once you're married. He's not saying that you should have sex even if you want to, if you you don't want to, just because you're married. He's not saying that if you don't want to have sex with your spouse, that something is wrong with you. 
These are messages, whether the church is meant to say them or not, people have heard. And that's not what Paul is trying to say in this passage. Now, I want to be clear. I am a pastor. I am not a sex therapist or a sex educator. (laughs) And so I'm not going to tell you all exactly what sex should look like in your marriage or outside of it. That's not my job. (laughs) Uh, But what I am going to tell you is that you should be talking about it. That if you're married and you don't talk about your sex life, you're in for trouble. <laughs> that if you're not communicating with the primary, the only person you're supposed to be practicing sexuality with, then you're in trouble. You should be working together to figure out what it should look like. And if you have issues around sexuality in your marriage, you should talk to someone. That's why there are sex therapists. That's why there are counselors. That's why there are people. I'm happy to listen. I probably can't help you because I'm not educated around that. But I can help you find people that are. Paul is reminding the Corinthians and he's reminding us that when we commit to marriage, we commit to another person. And the other person is the only one who gets to experience love and sex and romance from us. And so we have a responsibility to channel those things into that person. But we also have a a responsibility to recognize that we don't own that person. That that person doesn't uh, doesn't have a responsibility to, to meet our needs whenever we have them, that there's a mutual submission that Paul talks about in Ephesians that is in play here. And that happens when we find a balance and we search for what honors Jesus Christ most in our marriages and in the sex that happens in them. And so I also want to be clear. Sex within marriage is good. It's a note. Write it down. Sex within marriage is good. It's a gift that God has given us. Marriage gives boundaries for sex where it can be enjoyed in a safe and a productive manner. Or, yeah, manner. Sex doesn't run the marriage. It's not the primary thing that your marriage is about, but it is an important element that is intended to lead to a healthier marriage, just as a marriage is intended to lead to healthy sex and sexuality. And and although I've touched on it, I want to say it again explicitly that Paul would condemn in the strongest language using these verses or any abuse to one's spouse sexually or, or at all. That these verses are not a means or an avenue to take advantage of your spouse. This chapter and this letter are about honoring God with your marriage and your sexuality and your life. And forcing yourself on your spouse comes nowhere close to that. It's the opposite of what God calls us to. Sex within marriage is good, but only when it happens in a safe, respectful, God-honoring way and space. Abusive sex can happen in a marriage, and God and Paul does not give permission. He does anything but give permission for you to satisfy your desires at the cost of another. So while sex within marriage is good... I think there's another reality that many of us who are married know. And that's that just because you're married, marriage doesn't solve all your sex problems. Marriage won't solve all your sex problems. Look at these next few verses. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6 through 9, it says, Now, as a concession, not as a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each one is his own gift from God. One of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. 
See, Paul gives advice here as a concession and not as a command because he firmly believes that the single life is easier to live out when it comes to living out our faith. That we have at our disposal as single people an opportunity to do things for the kingdom of God in a way that married people don't because married people have more things to struggle with and to figure out within their marriage and within their family. And part of what he's talking about here, you know, Paul and Jesus reaffirm that marriage is hard. When Jesus sets up marital expectations, the disciples are like, well, it's better not to marry. Paul's like, yeah, you know what? Actually, in my opinion, it is. I wish you could all be like me. And part of the difficulty in marriage is around sex. You know, one of the common reasons that people seek out therapy in marriage is mismatched sex drives or libidos. Uh, one of the uh, one of the videos I looked at cited some research that said around 80% of men report having a higher sex drive than their wife, and around 20% of women report having a higher sex drive than their wife. But what I rarely hear is people saying, I have the same sex drive as my spouse. And that is an issue. It makes this conversation matter because one person wants to have sex and one person doesn't. And that's part of why Paul says, you know what? I wish you were all single like me and happy about it. It would be a whole lot easier if we had this gift that Paul describes where we are content and able to live out our singleness without having to broach on the issue of having sex. I think that is what Paul is talking about here. Because I know a lot of people who have done their best to keep up you know, keep themselves pure up to marriage. And I know a lot of people who have screwed up on their path toward marriage and crossed boundaries that they didn't mean to. And the truth is, when you cross boundaries, there are often consequences in your sexuality and in, in your marriage. But sometimes there's also consequences when you've tried really hard to keep those boundaries, but you've built up walls too high, and you don't know how to take those down when it comes to being married. I've talked to those people too. And the fact is, we bring our whole lives with us into our marriage. And there are challenges that go with being husband and wife. And Paul says, man, it would be a whole lot easier if you didn't have to deal with any of those challenges and you could just focus on Christ. If you could just say, hey, he's coming back and let's live for that. And Paul recognizes it would be easy if it came easy. But not everyone has that gift. He does encourage the engaged couple. He says, hey, if you can stay engaged and not get married, I think that's better. You should do that. He says to the single person, hey, if you can stay single, I think that's better. You should do that. But he says, if you can't, he uses the words burn with passion. If that's how you feel, you should get married. And what Paul is describing, I think, is a good thing. If sex is not on the table because you're not married, because Paul does not condone sex before or outside of marriage, then you can work on the things of God. If sex is off the table, then the idolatry and the prostitution and the things that are happening in the city of Corinth in this church, they would be a non-issue if you weren't struggling with sexuality as a single person. And as I said, that doesn't work for everybody because it's not as simple as just ignoring it. It's not as simple as just turning it off. For many of us, we don't have that kind of gift. I know for a lot of the single people I know, they don't want to be single. They would love to be married. They are not living in a world of zero sexuality. They may even describe themselves as burning with passion. 
What are they supposed to do? To be honest, Paul doesn't talk about that answer in 1 Corinthians. He doesn't say, if you burn with passion and there are barriers in the way to your marriage, do this. That is a challenge that, that we need to figure out how to address as a church. We need to be able to walk with our brothers and sisters who are in that boat to say, that answer isn't here in 1 Corinthians. And the truth is, I don't want to go into dangerous territory where I go, Paul doesn't say, but Dan says. Because I know if you're in that boat or if you are a same-sex attracted individual who's looking to understand your sexuality and live in a God-honoring way, you look at these verses and you say, what am I supposed to do? And so I can give you my thoughts based on scripture and on 11 years of marriage and 20 years of singleness before that. But I hesitate to speak for the Lord on this. What I do believe, what I can speak with authority on, is that I believe that Paul invites us to put Jesus Christ above the idol of sex. I believe that 1 Corinthians invites the Corinthians to take sex and sexuality off the pedestal and put Jesus in the place that he belongs. What if, whether we're married or single, what if our priorities are mixed up? What if sex is too high a priority or too low a priority for us? And, and either way, it's pushing Jesus out of where he's supposed to be. Because following Jesus is more important than sex. Following Jesus is more important than sex. You know, the rest of what God teaches us and invites us into, it's more important than having a fulfilled sex life. Yes, sex can be a part of being human. We all are built with some kind of interaction with sexuality. There's a reason that sex sells. There's a reason that it's everywhere in our society. And it's not the only thing about being human. And it's far from the most important part of being human or of following Jesus. What if sex isn't as important as society tells us it is? Here's one for you. What if marriage isn't as important as the church has told us it is? What if we've made an idol out of marriage and sexuality? That in a culture where those are the most important things, what if they're getting in the way of Jesus? Not that sex is bad inside of a marriage. Not that marriage is bad. It is a gift from God. It is a means by which God can give us grace. It is beautiful. It is a, a, an example of Christ in the church. But what if we've made it the most important thing? Is that where it's supposed to be? The question for us is how do we properly place sex as important while placing following Jesus as way more important? Here's what I think. If you're single... If you're uncontent with your singleness, that might not be up to you to change. There is a trying to practice contentment like Paul and Silas did in the jail cell that might be part of what Christ has called you to. And you don't just have to sit in that. Go on dates. Make yourself better. Prepare yourself so you're the kind of person that someone else might want to choose. Pursue what God has called you to if that is an option, but also be content with where God has put you.
You don't deny your sexuality as a human being, but you place it in the right place. You know, we did a, a series on sexual integrity uh, a little while back, and that might be a good thing to explore and the resources that were available there, whether you're a single person or a married person, whether you have clarity around your sexuality or not. Invite Jesus into that. Invite Jesus into that struggle. Be honest with the people involved. Tell people where you're at and learn how to move forward. If you want to talk more about this, that is part of why we're here. I won't have all the answers, but I can point you back to Jesus and I can listen. And I know that's true for all the pastors on staff. Because in the end, the invitation is to find joy in the path that Christ has set before us. We may not like it. It may not be easy. And we may never have chosen it for ourselves. But the call of Christ is to find joy in him. That's not tied to our circumstances. This is the gift of the gospel and the challenge of our walk with him. And if you're married, it's the same call when it comes to your sex life. Can you be content with where your sex life is in your marriage? Now, not content in the means that don't work on it. Not content in the means of don't talk about it. Not content in the means of don't talk to a professional together to find ways to do it better, more effectively meeting both of your needs. Not content in the fact of, oh, I have needs, but I'm just going to deny them and fall on my sword. But content in the fact of, I'm not going to make this the only thing. If God has called me into this marriage, I'm going to focus on the whole marriage and not just this one part of it. How can you, in your marriage, value sex appropriately and be considerate and self-sacrificial to your spouse in a manner that's appropriate to the way of Jesus Christ, that values your body and their body as temples of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to answer all your questions around sex and sexuality, but I can tell you this. Pursue Jesus Christ. That is what we are called to. Pursue Christ. Corinthians, man, the church in Corinth had a lot of issues, and a lot of them had to do with sex. When it came to sexuality and idolatry in their context, man, they were screwed up. And yet they saw the Holy Spirit doing crazy things among them. There was a lot of hurt and division and pain in their midst as well. And what I believe Jesus is inviting us into is an opportunity. This is a church that's growing. It's a church that is going to real places of hurt, real things that matter. If you can't tell from the message today, we're going to go there. And I wonder if we want to make a name for Jesus, if we want to make an impact in his name, when we consider what if this letter had been written to us, I think there's a question for us. That question is this. How are we doing when it comes to sex? Have we taken a good hard look at our own lives, and said, if Paul had written this letter to ECC, what might he have said? And that's the question I want to leave us with today. Do you have sex as a higher or a lower priority than it should in your life? Because the truth is, <laughs> the invitation that Paul gives later in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 10, applies to us just as strongly. See, there he was talking about food sacrificed to idols. But he could just as strongly have been talking about sexuality. 
God has put some boundaries around our sexuality, but as we engage with it inside of those boundaries, we can do so for the glory of God. See these verses from Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through 33. It says, so whatever you, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, I'm not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they might be saved. So whether you enjoy the gift of sex within your marriage, whether you abstain from sex in your singleness, whatever you do when it comes to your sexuality, do it for the glory of God in a way that benefits those around you who are a part of that. Don't seek your own advantage, but serve those around you so that people might experience the power of the kingdom of God. Because that's what Christ invites us into. We get to be a part of bringing that kingdom. Sex is something that has caused more shame and more hurt for people than than few other things, especially in the church. So many of us carry baggage around our sexuality, our past experiences with sex. We carry baggage either because of the lines we've crossed or baggage around the opportunities we haven't taken or baggage around the things that have been done to us or baggage because we haven't lived up to to God's line or baggage because we tried to do everything right and our expectations didn't live up to reality. We carry baggage for all kinds of reasons. And as we enter into a time of communion today, I want to invite you to leave your baggage at the door to leave your shame at the door of an empty tomb. Don't ignore it. Don't push it down. But make a choice not to let it own you. And instead say, Jesus, how can I move through this, recognizing that you offer resurrection and life? Let the body and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanse you from all unrighteousness as you confess your sins, as you bring your anger and your fear, and may you be met by the risen Savior who loves you and who offers you a better way. You know, we follow a crucified Lord who pulled an all-nighter that night in the garden, who cried and sweat and prayed because he was going to take a cross, the thing that shows us that he was with us, that he has felt the things that we feel, that he was tempted in every way. And he not only gave up that night's sleep, but he was a person who probably had a sexual element as well that we have no record of him ever expressing. And so he gets that too. Your sexuality and your baggage there is not too big for Jesus. He is with you, and he knows you. God knows what your situation is, so as we enter into this time, bring what you carry to the foot of the cross and seek to pursue him with whatever sexuality looks like for you. Because what we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 are these words around communion. It says, The Lord Jesus, in the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, 
You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. At Emmanuel, we believe that the only person that can keep you from the Lord's table is you. If you can sincerely pray the prayers that we're about to pray, well, we welcome you at the table. You can come whenever you're ready. There won't be any ushers here. There won't be anyone telling you at home when to do it. But as you take your drink and your bread, when we're finished praying, let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Let God, through these real elements, remind you that he was human and that through his life and death, he was also God. And he supernaturally does something. May he do that in us as well. Let's pray these prayers together. Heavenly Father, to whom all hearts and minds are open and all desires are known, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may more perfectly love you and more worthily magnify your holy name. We confess that we are sinners and cannot save ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. We are not worthy for these gifts which we are about to receive, but say the word, and we will be made clean. God, I pray that we would not only be made clean in your sight, but that for those who faithfully pray these prayers and engage in these things, we may feel clean as well. Lord, may this feel like a moment of hope, a moment of resurrection, that there is an opportunity not to be perfect, but to take a step forward toward you who is perfect. God, I pray for everyone who is struggling with their sexuality, whether they are single or married, God, whatever their situation is, you are there in it. And I pray they would feel your presence near and that together with your church, they might know what it looks like to move forward. Because God, we trust you and we love you. And you taught us how to pray with these words. You said, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.